All right, this evening we're going to look at verses 5 and 6 of the epistle of Jude. So if you'll turn with me there in your Bibles. We'll begin with a variant reading, actually a variant textual reading. And some of you may actually have a note in your Bibles on the variant that is here in in verse 5, rather. Do you happen to... Uh, notice what it is. Is there a little footnote that takes you to the margin? The first state? Verse 5. Oh, verse 5. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Marge? Well, I just have one little thing that says some ancient manuscripts from Jesus. Right, okay. So your reading, at least in most of your Bibles, will be that the Lord after saving a people out of the land of Egypt. And the variant is Jesus after saving a people out of the land of Egypt. Now, the variant reading is in the Greek text, and there is um, good manuscript support for both readings. But I want to uh, point out something which I think solves the apparent problem. This does not affect the doctrine of the text uh, greatly at all. But it is an interesting example of how we could resolve a apparent discrepancy, uh, whether it was imported by a copyist, whether the copyist changed the word for a particular reason or not. So let's take a look at verse 1 and notice what the name for our Lord is there. And what do you see as you look at verse 1? Jesus Christ. And how many times does it appear in verse 1? Twice. It appears twice in the first verse. All right, so we have Jesus Christ in verse 1. What about verse 4? Lord God, Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. What about verse 17? Our Lord Jesus Christ. What about verse 21? Our Lord Jesus Christ again. What about verse 25? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord. It's a little bit different in verse 25. All right, now, uh, let's go back and skip verse 5 for a moment and take a look at verse 9. And what word do we find there? Lord, okay, Lord. What about verse 14? The Lord. The Lord, Lord again. All right, now, does that shed any light on what the reading in verse 5 should be? In other words, does it tip the balance towards the word Lord in verse 5 as well? Well, let's notice where Lord is used. Lord alone is used in 9, 14, and potentially verse 5. It is not used alone anywhere else in the epistle. 
If it's used elsewhere in the epistle, as it is in 4, 17, 21, and 25, it's conjoined with Jesus Christ, or our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, is this significant? Yes, I think it is. What is going on in this section where the word Lord appears? In other words, from verse 5 on to verse 17, only the word Lord is used for the deity in that section. The name Jesus and Christ does not appear at all between verses 5 and 16, if Lord is the reading, which is more primary, more authentic in verse 5. Why would that be? Why would he use Lord in 5, 9, and 14, and nowhere else in the epistle? Well, what's going on from verse 5 on? If you go back to our uh, session in which we talked about the structure of this epistle, you'll notice that where he uses the word Lord, he is also talking about the Old Testament individuals or examples. Verses 5 to 16 are a section in which he reviews Old Testament characters and brings them to bear upon the message of his letter. All right, so why use the word Lord in that section in which he's dealing with the Old Testament individuals or the Old Testament stories? Because it would be the highest term for God himself. And he would want to be emphasizing that in this section in the Old Testament, the Lord who appears to the people involved, the Lord who speaks in these situations, the Lord who is coming in these situations, is the Lord God of the Jewish Bible. So that when he does use that term Lord and associate it with Jesus Christ in the rest of the epistle, that is in the first section and in the last section of the epistle, he attaches Lord to Jesus Christ. You see what he's doing. He's saying that the God of the Old Testament is equal to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's not waxing eloquently on the doctrine of the Trinity, but what he's doing is he's using that term in order to indicate the high Christology of Jesus That is, the high dignity, the high personhood of the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. So he uses Lord from that Old Testament section in order to underscore the fact that this Lord who appears in the Old Testament is also the Lord who has been incarnate in terms of the second person of the Godhead and therefore has the highest authority to his. Remember, we understand this is a Jewish Palestinian Jewish Christian audience. These are uh, Jewish Christians, perhaps around Nazareth in Galilee, uh, churches that were planted uh, out of the book of Acts, and this would resonate with them. Aha, you see, when I'm reading my Old Testament, then I'm reading about the Lord, who is in many instances a revelation of the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Godhead before his incarnation. And that's probably the reason that you've got that variant reading. In other words, some copyists wanted to make it clear in verse 5 that the Lord of the Old Testament is Jesus. And so he changes the word in order to make a theological point. He shouldn't have done it. In other words, I think the word Lord there is original. It's not a derivative. 
And, but nonetheless, there are a number of manuscripts, a great number of manuscripts that have the term Jesus here. I'm making a structural argument for why Lord should be the primary reading and probably was the authentic reading of Jude when he wrote the epistle. All right, now there's another uh, point to note here, and that is the, uh, the cognate of the verbs. <clears throat> In verse 5, he uses a verb at the beginning, and you'll notice in verse 17, he also uses a cognate of that very same verb. Can you pick it out? Do you see the duplication? Verse 5 and verse 17. Remember? Remember. Very good. Verse 5, I desire to remind you. And verse 17, beloved, you ought to remember. Those are actually cognates of the same Greek word, so that he is framing this section. In other words, he's placing a little bracket framework around verses 5 and 17. In verse 5, it indicates that he's beginning a new unit, even as we indicated previously with this discussion, this variant, variant reading. Namely, he's beginning a unit in which he's going to introduce these Old Testament personalities. But that unit comes to an end in verse 16, and so in verse 17, he uses that cognate of remember again to begin another new unit in his letter. It's actually the unit which is symmetrical with the first four verses of the epistle, but it includes a longer exposition, a more developed exposition from 17 to 25, of encouragements to the believers in the Christian community. Remember, we argued that this epistle is is bracketed by the Christian community at the beginning, verses 1 to 4, and the Christian community at the end, verses 17 to 25, and in between this discussion of the antithetical, non-Christian community, which is made up of these intruders that have insinuated themselves into the church. So, this... Is, this is another little literary marker for the uh, shift in gears, the shift in transitions. Remember, and now I'm going to talk about something else. Remember, and now I'm going to talk about something else. And in between, he leaves the uh, middle sandwich, shall we say, of these Old Testament figures and his discussion of their application to the, the story, or to the uh, congregation to which he's writing. Any questions about any of that? All right, now, in verse 5, he's obviously referring to an Old Testament story. And what story is it that he's referring to here? The Exodus. The Exodus. Anything else, Mark? Oh, I thought, I thought you had said something more. No, I said Exodus. Exodus, okay, there's, there's agreement. Yes, it is the Exodus. What about he destroyed them who did not believe? Where did that come from? That's the 40 years in the wilderness. Where's the story found? Ben, where's the story found? Exodus. Not in Exodus. Numbers. In Numbers. What chapter? 14. Chapter 13? Chapter 13. Begins in 13. Chapter 25 to 33, and continues in chapter 14. What is this story? Nancy, what is this story? 
About you, Pam. What's this story? I'm sorry, I'm still back in Egypt. You're still, you're still back in the Exodus. I'm still in Egypt. <laughs> you're still in Egypt. We want to bring you out. What is this story? God's salvation. He's yes, salvation but, yes, but he destroyed them, though. What's that story about? Art, what's that story about? Sending in the spies. Sending in the spies. How many? Twelve. What were their names? Two of them. You know two of them. What are they? Joshua and Caleb. Caleb. Joshua and Caleb were part of the 12 spies. Okay? And they went into Canaan. What were they supposed to do? Art? Uh, spy out the land so they could make plans to invade. Okay? And did they spy out the land? They did. They did? And did they bring back a report, Terry? They did. What kind of a report did they bring back? Well... That uh, were giants in the land, and they could never, never uh, invade except for Joshua and Caleb. Except for Joshua and Caleb. So there was a a non-unanimous vote that we can't take the land. There was a majority and a minority report. Now, this is a good Presbyterian group, isn't it? Even way back in the Book of Numbers. <laughs> But the majority voted, no, we can't do it. And so God responded. How? Fire? Uh, 40 more years in the desert. Why? Because they didn't trust the Lord. Didn't trust the Lord. What was going to happen in 40 years? Bob? They were all right. That generation was going to die, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. Okay, everyone 20 years of age and above. All right, all right, we've got the basic framework of the story. So we look at the language of the verse, back to Jude verse 5. Saving a people out of the land of Egypt. Now, we can uh, equate that participle with the word saved or redeemed. And the word destroyed in verse 5, we can equate with the antithesis of saved and redeemed. Unsaved, unredeemed. So it looks like he saved them, but he didn't save them. Looks like he redeemed them, and it looks like he didn't redeem them. In other words, it appears that we've got a problem here in this verse of an implicit contradiction. Or, if not a contradiction, then at least an inconsistency. It would appear that once saved, but not always saved, is being taught from this verse in the epistle of Jude. That you may be destroyed or unsaved after being saved. One interesting commentator has written, there's no once saved, always saved idea here in Jude verse 5. All right, now, that is a possible reading of the passage. It's a possible reading of the passage in that there is an implicit contradiction in the passage and Jude doesn't know everything and so consequently he could have made a mistake. It's also a possibility that God, having saved them, 
decided to change his mind. And so he unsaved them. He reversed himself. Having voted for them, he voted against them later on. All right, so those are uh, two possibilities, uh, which, of course, have uh, found their way into the history of doctrine uh, over the history of the life of the church. But let's take a look at another alternative solution, and let's do it by looking at the text itself, beginning with Numbers 14, which is part of this incident, and examining verse 35. So I want you to turn with me. I want you to be ready to turn to these passages which are on your outline. So keep your uh, finger in Jude if you want, but also if you can't keep your finger in one place, just remember we're going to go back to Jude eventually, but we're going to go back to the Old Testament for a number of passages. We want to point out some uh, very significant uh, vocabulary. Numbers 1435, if someone has it, would you please read it out? And surely this I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. Okay, now what is the character of those who are going to die according to this verse, Dick? It's an evil congregation. I want you to note that language. It is an evil congregation which is going to die in the wilderness. Now turning ahead in Numbers to chapter 32, verse 13. Numbers 32, verse 13. And once again, when you have it, please read it out. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he made them wander in the desert 40 years, until the whole generation of those who had done evil in his sight was gone. That generation which died in the wilderness, remember these are the unbelievers, they, were, they had done evil in the sight of the Lord, According to this passage, this passage is looking back upon that incident and rehearsing it or recounting it in terms of, once again, the character of those who died in the wilderness. They, were, they had done evil in God's sight. All right, now just turning ahead to the next book of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 35. Deuteronomy 1, 35. Now there's Moses once again reviewing or rehearsing the history of Israel's past. In Deuteronomy, they've come to the banks of the Jordan, and so he's looking back over their past history and reviewing it, and notice that he again says this evil generation that died in the wilderness because of the report of the ten spies. Going ahead to Deuteronomy verse chapter 9, verse 23. Deuteronomy 9, 23. Now, this is the first time where we have a kind of variation on this evil generation, or they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Here, in Deuteronomy 9.23, we are told that they neither believed God nor listened to his voice. Now, listening to his voice with respect to what? Specifically, with respect to the promise 
that he would give them that land as their inheritance. All right, now we go to the Psalter, particularly the Exodus Psalms in the Psalter. Psalm 78, verse 22. These uh, magnificent psalms which rehearse the past history of redemption uh, in the Psalter, Psalm 78, one of the magnificent ones is, is Psalm 106, which we'll note, which we'll look at later. Psalm 78, verse 22. For they did not believe in God or trust in his deliverance. They did not believe in God or trust in his salvation, as the New American Standard reads. And once again, notice the emphasis upon they did not believe in God nor trust in his saving grace. Psalm 95, verse 10. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. Okay, these are people whose hearts go astray. New American Standard says who err in their heart. So we have a characterization of their emotional center. That is the center of their emotional personality. They are going astray. They err in their emotional center of devotion, of love, of even passion. And finally, Psalm 106, another one of the magnificent Exodus Psalms, Psalm 106, verse 24. And they despised uh, the pleasant land. They did not believe in his word. What would be the pleasant land here? The promised land? The promised land. Yes, the promised land. The pleasant land is the land of milk and honey. Notice again, they did not believe in his word. Now, when we turn to Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 7, we notice that this incident is recounted once again. Here it's recounted through Psalm 95, a portion of which or verse from which we read earlier. And that review of Psalm 95, which emphasizes the hardening of the heart of that generation that died in the wilderness, is underscored and repeated several times over Hebrews 3, 7 to 19 and chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. But I want to look particularly at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. If you have it, please read it out. Hebrews 3, 12. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Thank you. Just just the 12th verse is fine. Okay. All right. So this verse is uh, capsulizing or summarizing what the writer of Hebrews has been saying from the 95th Psalm. I want to look at that phrase, evil, unbelieving heart, for a moment. Because grammatically, the modern translations mistranslate it. Evil and unbelieving are adjectives in that translation. Heart is a noun in that translation. Evil, unbelieving, heart. However, in fact, the Greek has an adjective for evil, a noun for heart, 
and a noun for unbelief, which means that we do not have two adjectives, evil, unbelieving heart, as most of your versions read, including the New American Standard. What we have is one adjective and two nouns. The adjective evil, modifying the word heart, and noun for the word unbelief in the genitive case. Now, there's only one translation that translates it accurately. I shouldn't say only one, but there's one distinctive translation that translates it accurately, and that's the old King James. Now, as you know, I'm not recommending that you read the King James except devotionally for its literary quality because it is not based upon the best and up-to-date manuscripts. Nonetheless, this verse just proves that the King James translators could do something right and do it better than the modern translators. So here is a case in point. All right? It, it, it doesn't cause me to direct you away from my favorite translation, which is New American Standard, but nonetheless, it reminds us that even the modern translators can you know, take, take a liberty here and not express it literally, and literally is better. How should this be translated? Evil heart, there's your adjective noun, of unbelief. There's your genitive in the Greek. That's what the Greek text says. That's the way the phrase ought to be translated. <laughs> because, you see, it's an evil heart possessed of unbelief. Now, you say it's the same thing as saying an evil, unbelieving heart. It's not quite the same thing because you've made an adjective out of a noun, and that's not what the Greek writer is doing. That's not what the writer of Hebrews is doing. And so, when the King James translators translate it literally, they translate it with more force. An evil heart of unbelief. It's evil in unbelief. It's a heart of unbelief. It's an evil heart of unbelief. It's not just an evil, unbelieving heart. It's an evil heart of unbelief. <laughs> the of genitive flows back over the entire verse. All right. So this passage then in Hebrews uh, uh, 3.12 is describing what we noticed when we looked at the Old Testament passages. The evil of this congregation. The doing of evil. That they did not believe on God. Nor did they trust in him. They erred in their hearts, etc. So, Hebrews 3.12 is summing up the character, the moral character, the dispositional character, the mental character, the attitudinal character, the devotional character of this generation that died in the wilderness. They had an evil heart of unbelief. All right, now, one more uh, series of verses to take a look at from Romans chapter 9, and then we'll tie this together. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. When you have it, go ahead and read it out. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So not all Israel is of Israel. Verse 7. Continue, Dick, would you please? Nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. Good. That's fine. So, not all of Israel is of Israel, and not all the children of their, not all are children of God who are children of the flesh. 
Well, how do we make sense then of Jude chapter, Jude, Jude verse 5? Saved or redeemed here is applicable to those who possess an evil heart of unbelief. Jude is not stupid. He's not naive. He knew his Old Testament, as we shall see in this section. And he knew what was said about that generation in Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Psalter, etc. So, how is it possible for people to be saved or redeemed who have an evil heart of unbelief? Salvation or redemption, as we understand it, would transform an evil heart from unbelief to belief. It would regenerate an evil heart from unbelief to faith. It would turn an evil heart from hating God to loving God. So how is it possible that we have saved or redeemed people in the Exodus who have an evil heart of unbelief? There's only one solution. It's obvious, isn't it? That the saved word refers to what had occurred to them externally, visibly, outwardly, apparently, formally, but it had not taken possession of them internally, inwardly, really and actually. In other words, the generation that came out of Egypt in the Exodus was redeemed outwardly, externally, visibly, but not internally, inwardly, invisibly. They were removed from physical bondage and hardship. They were delivered from slavery into freedom. But it made no change in their moral character. It did not change their disposition to believe on the Lord God. They had an evil heart of unbelief, even though they walked out of Egypt free of slavery. It is therefore then quite clear why God destroys them. He destroys them because they do not believe. They, in fact, have an evil heart of unbelief. God had promised them that land. He had demonstrated his power to deliver on his promises by bringing them out of Egyptian slavery and bondage, carrying them across the Red Sea in the face of Pharaoh's pursuing army, feeding them in the wilderness. And yet, in spite of all of that, when those spies reported that they could not conquer that land, they wanted to go back to Egypt. Now, you tell me that that's a regenerate heart. You tell me that that's a heart of faith. You tell me that's a heart that loves the word of God and trusts his promises. That's an evil heart of unbelief, spurning the power of God, spurning the providence of God, spurning spurning the miraculous provision of God, spurning all that God had said and done for them externally, visibly, outwardly in order to enforce the fact that they needed a believing heart, not an evil heart. 
So what we're dealing here with is the same thing that Paul says in Romans 9, 6. All of Israel, all of external Israel, all of visible Israel, all of outward Israel is not of Israel, is not of internal Israel, is not of invisible Israel, is not of, 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 of that regenerate, inward, re, real Israel. This is certainly no less true in the Exodus generation than it was in the days of Elijah. When God said to Elijah, I have only 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000 out of that whole nation of Israel. 7,000 out of all of those people that were descendants of that generation that had been redeemed out of slavery. That external act did not transform the internal character. It is a wonderful and marvelous testimony to the powerful grace of God. But that grace of God must go further than simply breaking the shackles of slavery externally. It must break the bondage of sin internally. And what is true for Israel in Moses' day is true for us in our day. And that's exactly what Jude was facing in his day. These intruders sneaking into this community of believers... Outwardly, externally, apparently members of the Christian community. And yet inwardly, internally, children of the flesh. Internally, invisibly possessors of an evil heart of unbelief. These intruders were not real possessors of saving grace any more than that generation that died in the wilderness were real possessors of saving grace. He destroyed them because they had not received regenerating grace by his sovereign elective disposition. And he left them to themselves in their evil heart of unbelief and their carcasses dropped in the wilderness. Well, then you may cry out, then there's no hope for us. Well, of course there's hope for you. The hope for you is that you have a believing heart, not an unbelieving heart. The hope for you is that you love the word of God, not that you hate it and resist it. The hope for you is that you trust his promises, which are sure, yea and amen. They are not maybe, and I'll contradict myself tomorrow. You are not dealing with an almighty God who gives you with one hand what he takes away with the other. What he gives you With the hand of Jesus in John 10, he covers over with his own hand, also in John 10, so that no one will take you out of his hand. If he gives you a believing heart, not an evil heart. If he gives you a faithful heart, not an unfaithful. If he gives you a regenerate heart, not an unregenerate heart, he puts you into the hands of Jesus when he does that, and he caps his own hand over the hand of Jesus over you. And you are not strong enough to take yourself out of the hand of Jesus, nor are you strong enough to take yourself out of the hand of Jesus with the hand of God, the Father, over his hand, nor would you want to, nor would you desire or be inclined to. Your heart has been changed from unbelief to faith. Your heart has been changed from not trusting to trusting. Your heart has been changed to not loving or being indifferent to loving. That was not true of this generation that died in the wilderness. Tragically, sadly, but actually and really, 
They were only a generation of pretenders. They were happy to be slaves no longer. They were happy to be fed for free in the wilderness. They were happy to be on their way somewhere. But when they found out that it was going to be a land of giants, they decided that they'd rather turn tail and go back to the slave pits of Egypt. Now, dear brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but having once been to the foot of the cross, would you turn back to the pit of hell? Would you? Would you embrace the darkness having seen the light of the world? Would you give up the promise of heaven for the despair of hell and eternal torment? That's what this generation did in the wilderness. All that was figured to them in the Passover lamb. All that was figured to them in the crossing of the Red Sea. All that was figured to them in the seeing of Mount Sinai. All ablaze with the glory of God. And they turned their backs on it and said, we'd rather go back to Egypt. What did Jesus say? You put your hand to the plow and turn back. You are not worthy of the kingdom of heaven. That's exactly the disposition that describes this generation that died in the wilderness who were willing, willing to run back to slavery and bondage and death under the hard taskmasters of the Egyptians. That means they were willing to go back to the evil principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this present evil age. Would you sell yourself back into slavery to those having once been delivered from it? If you did, if you would, you were never really delivered from it. What we're dealing with here in Jude chapter 5, these intruders, these intruders are apostates, even as that generation of Israel was apostate. Those of that generation that had that evil heart of unbelief. That is the reason that Jude brings this verse to bear upon the situation, circumstances of this Christian community. He is warning that community and warning these intruders. You are in the same boat as that generation that had that evil, unbelieving heart. You are apostate. And I am warning you. That if because of that evil heart of unbelief, God is going to destroy you like he destroyed them. I'm not mincing any words because there is an exact parallel between your attitude towards the word of God and their attitude towards the word of God. And as they perished in the wilderness, so you will perish in your hard hearted unbelief. Keep in mind that he uses this Old Testament example in order to draw a symmetrical parallel between that generation in Moses' day and these intruders in his own day. This is apples and apples. He says, I'm warning you, and I'm alerting you within that community who are believers. Beware. Beware of these interlopers. Beware of these weasels. Beware of these sneaks who have wormed their way into the community. For the purpose of subverting the common salvation, verse 3, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 4. 
Now, this is a matter of intense alarm for Jude. Why? Because it reminds him of his own biography. It reminds him of his own story. What did John chapter 7 verse 5 say about Jude? Do you have it? Read it out. Do you know it, man? But not even his brothers were believing in him. Not even his brothers. That includes Jude? It includes Jude. Jude had an evil heart of unbelief. Did he not? Jude knew what it meant to be under the bondage of an evil heart of unbelief. Jude knew that with respect to Jesus, his older brother, he was just like that generation with an attitude towards Moses and towards God. He understood it existentially. He had experienced hard-hearted unbelief. But praise be to God, that heart was broken by the grace of his elder brother, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find him at least, if not before the resurrection, after the resurrection of his brother Lord, praying with the disciples in the upper room in the first chapter of the book of Acts. He has been regenerated. He has been saved internally. He has been saved inwardly. He has been redeemed invisibly. That which is absolutely essential, symbolized by the external redemption, salvation, deliverance, etc. That must come into the consciousness, into the heart, into the personality, into the nature, into the being. It had come into Jude. Perhaps from the change that occurred in Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7, perhaps some other way, but whatever way it came, we know it came. Because he calls himself in the opening verse of this epistle, the bond slave, the slave of Christ, not the slave drudge of Satan or the kingdom of darkness, the slave of his loving elder brother, redeemer, savior, who had changed his life, changed his heart, changed his inward nature. And so he's very much alert to the insidious character of these apostate intruders who are just like the revisitation of the apostate wilderness generation in the book of Numbers. Now, there's a lot of, shall we say, negative eschatology here. But we need to remember that he's already started his epistle on the note of a positive eschatology. Where is the positive eschatology in this epistle? It begins in verse 1. You are called... You are called. Called by whom? Called by God. Called from where? Called out of heaven. Called how? Called by being changed to answer that call, to hear it, and to respond in faith to it. That's an eschatological positive. In other words, you've been called by the God of heaven. You won't be uncalled by him. You're a beloved of God, verse 1. You're beloved of God the Father. He won't unlove you. He won't make you hated of God the Father. That's a positive eschatology. 
He's talking to them in terms of the fact that their genuine faith, their genuine calling is a mark of their genuine being loved of God. And they're kept, kept in Jesus Christ. Once again, verse 1, that's an eschatological concept. He's keeping you now and he is keeping you for eternity. He's not going to drop you. He's not going to make you unkept. He's not going to unprotect you. He's not going to leave you unguarded. He has promised to keep you until the end, and he won't betray his promise. There's an eschatological fruition here as well as an eschatological realization here. And what about verse 2? Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy, the mercy of heaven, that's an eschatological reality. The peace, the peace of heaven, that's an eschatological reality. The love, the love of heaven, that's an eschatological reality. In other words, he gives a positive emphasis upon the reality of their future eschatological enjoyment and their present realization of it in and through grace by faith. Verse 3, he had wanted to write about their common salvation. They are participants in that common salvation, a redemption which is common to all true believers, which includes not only present reality, but future fruition. The certainty of that fruition, that common salvation, is not that you have it now and may make it. It may be uncommon tomorrow or next year, but it's common to you now and it will be common to you in heaven. It is this common salvation to the whole fellowship of the glorified saints around the throne of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in glory. That's an eschatological positive. And finally, in verse 4, the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is certainly an eschatological positive. Because the reception of that grace now is a, it will be a continuing reception of that grace and perfection of it in glory. In other words, it is a down payment, or Paul says an arabon. It is a down payment of the glory which is to come. This grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a negative eschatology. There's an anti-eschatology. It is what happened to that generation in the wilderness. They were destroyed. It is what happened to them, according to Psalm 95, that they hardened their hearts in unbelief. And in verse 6 of this epistle, that negative eschatology is described as eternal bondage, eternal chains, eternal slavery. Verse 6 again, it is darkness, eternal darkness. Verse 7, it is eternal fire. There is the anti-eschatology which stands over against the positive eschatology of the first four verses. So in verses 5 and following, we're going to see the other side of the coin eschatologically speaking. We're going to see the flip side of the positive uh, fruition and expectation and blessing and promise of the kingdom of heaven, entrance into the kingdom of heaven, possession of the kingdom of heaven. We're going to see possession of the kingdom of hell, entrance into the kingdom of darkness, what it means to be possessed and belong to that uh, arena, to that arena uh, <clears throat> through, the, through the vivid vocabulary of Jude here in this section 5 through 16. 
Any questions about this section? Yes, David. Uh, that uh, analysis means, as I read Hebrews, that the rest forfeited the Lord for that they would not enter his rest is an eternal rest as opposed to a temporal rest. I guess I, I'm having a hard time reconciling the fact that this generation that perished in the wilderness is the same generation that participated in the first Passover, which was celebrated annually for centuries. The preeminent feast of Israel, in my view. Um, well, not for centuries in their case, okay, because they died within 40 years of having celebrated it. Um, whether or not they celebrated it in the wilderness is another interesting question because it appears that they didn't celebrate it until they came into the promised land under Joshua, at least after they'd celebrated in Egypt. But that's a, that's a technical point of uh, distinction. <clears throat> the Passover itself did not make any spiritual transformation in the hearts of those who observed it. You could go through the motions, very much like people go through the motions of taking communion, but it doesn't make any tra- spiritual transformation in them. So the point here is that all that uh, imagery uh, pushes you to the next level. It pushes you beyond the visible and the external and the outward. It pushes you to what its meaning is, and that's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Christ, our Passover, has been, sac- has been sacrificed for us. They were to see Christ in that sacrifice. They refused to see it. They were to see the transforming grace of God by means of that, namely transformation from death to life by blood redemption. They refused to see it. All they saw was a free pass out of slavery. It's no different than the rice Christians of our generation or other Christians who come to Jesus in order to find fire insurance. I don't want to go to hell, but I'm not sure I really love you and want to go to heaven either. It's this outward benefit that is attractive to some. Now, in our 21st century, it's less attractive because it's being ridiculed more and more. But nonetheless, that aside, this, this, uh, this Passover uh, observance had the same uh, dynamic pattern that all of the other acts of God have. This externalism in and of itself, what I am doing for you outwardly, does not save you inwardly. But it reminds you of what you must have. You must for, you must circumcise your heart, not your foreskins. You must cut away sin from your life and believe on what I'm doing for you. And not just simply march with the rest of the crowd out of Egypt through the Red Sea and into the wilderness and get free bread and water. All right, whether you're persuaded that that's accurate or not, I think you have to grapple with it with respect to this fifth verse. And so it's time for you to feed on something yourself. So take your break and refresh yourself. All right, now we have reached verse 6. And as you hold your finger there in Jude 6, let's turn back for a moment to Second Peter chapter 2.
verse 4. And once again, when somebody has it, please read it out. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. All right, now you'll notice that that passage is very similar to what we have in Jude 6. It's one of the reasons, if you may recall, in our, one of our previous uh, sessions, we talked about the dependence upon Second uh, Peter of uh, Jude and the interdependence of the two. And so here's a case where we see it quite clearly. So what's being described in Jude verse 6? What is he talking about here? The fall of the angels. The fall of the angels. All right, now... Let's take a look at the language inside the verse. I'm using the vocabulary of the New American Standard. They abandoned their proper abode. What does the word abandoned mean? Forsook. 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 Anything else? Gave it up. Gave it up. Okay. Anything else? Left. Left. Okay. They moved away from. Okay, so they moved away from what? He says their proper abode. What does he mean, their proper abode? Their assigned station. Heaven. Pardon? Their assigned station. Their assigned station. What was that? It was heaven. They moved away from their proper arena or dwelling place, which was heaven. Okay, what is this act on the part of the angels? It is an act of rebellion. It's an act of unbelief. It's an act of sin. It's an act of evil. We got that one. Disobedience. Disobedience. It's an act of... What do we say about... Just about uh, ten minutes ago, what did we say about that generation in the wilderness? Yes, what else? Unbelievers. That they were what? Unbelievers. Yes, what else? What about these intruders? What are these intruders? They are what? Apostates. They are apostates. Are these rebel angels apostates? Are they apostatizing? So why does he use them as an example? Well, he uses them as an example on the heels of having talked about the Exodus generation, the wilderness generation, because they're parallel. They're apostates just like that wilderness generation became apostate. Only here, he takes it to a higher level than the temporal, the earthly. He takes it to the level of heaven itself. In other words, there was an apostasy in heaven. Perhaps before, well, not perhaps, definitely before the fall of Adam and Eve. 
perhaps even before the creation of the heavens and the earth. Perhaps. We're not sure about that. We're told in the book of Revelation that there was war in heaven. This is obviously a reflection of that very same rebellion. But this is a rebellion of apostasy. It is a rebellion of angels who abandon their proper abode, namely heaven itself, and they abandoned their proper character, their proper moral disposition. In rebelling, they became, as you said, evil. They had an evil, rebellious heart, just like this generation that perished in the wilderness. What is apostasy? Apostasy is the imitation of the damned angels. That's what apostasy is. What is apostasy? Apostasy is a rebellion against heaven's God. It is as if you were standing in front of his throne and shook your fist at him and refused to bow before his glory or to obey his word. What would be the only option he would have? To cast you out. To send you hurling in flames from heaven down to the pit of the lowest hell. He would have no alternative but to do that to you because he could not abide any apostate, any unbelief, any evil heart in his presence. It has no place in the kingdom of heaven. Which means we have some symmetrical antitheses here. Notice that Jude says they did not keep. Verse 6. Where's the antithesis? Verse 1. Yes, kept by Jesus Christ. Notice the antithesis. He's working off of the very same vocabulary in order to remind his audience that this is the very opposite You're kept by Christ. They did not keep their proper abode. And so they're now kept somewhere else. All right. Now, where are they kept? They're kept under darkness. The darkness of hell. According to uh, 2 Peter 2, 4, he fills in the place location for us, which means they had abandoned what? The light of heaven. They had surrendered their proper abode, the light of glory, the light of heaven for the darkness of the pit of hell. And he is keeping them in eternal bonds. What are these bonds? Well, I would would expect that the bonds would keep them from being loosed. What are they tied up with? Chains, yes, they're shackled, they're chained, they're in bonds. Notice it's an eternal bond. And the antithesis of that is the peace of verse 2, which results from the liberty of everlasting servanthood to the Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They had given up their liberty in heaven. The liberty of serving God faithfully, humbly, with believing hearts, remaining in their place, remaining in that glorious abode. What did they seek? What were they looking for? 
What was the cause of their rebellion? Okay. What else? Something better than they had. Something better than they had. To be like God or to have the privilege of deity and the prerogatives of deity. They were seeking something better than they had, even as Israel sought something better than they had in the wilderness by wanting to return to Egypt. And they received then what? What did the angels receive? Something better than they had. They received something worse than they expected. Be careful what you wish for. Indeed, be careful what you wish for. And Israel received something worse than they expected. Their carcasses dropped in the wilderness. They died, barred from God's eternal rest and from the promised land. This is not an incidental story. This is a fall before the fall. This is a violated probation angelic before the violated probation human. This is a pattern that repeats itself in the insidious assault of Satan upon Eve and Adam. He had already gone through it. And now, since he had failed in heaven, he was going to succeed on earth. He's not going up against the Lord of glory in the Garden of Eden. He's going up against the head of the created human order by means of worming his way into the consciousness and the doubt of the weaker vessel. This is an instant replay of a paradigm which was already fought out in heaven's arena before it was fought out in the arena of this earth. And there is no better description of this rebellion than that which was penned by the magnificent John Milton in Paradise Lost. The infernal serpent he it was whose guile stirred up with envy and revenge deceived the mother of mankind what time his pride had cast him out from heaven with all his host of rebel angels by whose aid aspiring to set himself in glory above his peers he trusted to have equaled the most high if he opposed and with ambitious aim against the throne and monarchy of God raised impious war in heaven and battle proud with vain attempt. Him, the almighty power, hurled headlong flaming from the ethereal sky with hideous ruin and combustion down to bottomless perdition, there to dwell in adamantine chains and penal Fire, who dost defer, defy the omnipotent to arms? Who?
Milton gets it. Do you get it from Milton? Do you see how reading Milton can help you understand your Bible? This is magnificent poetry, magnificent imagery, magnificent biblical portrayal. Now you'll notice that Milton thinks it was an assault upon the equality of God. It is likely that that was the case. But then Milton turns it. Later on as he develops the story of the rebellion of the angels in Paradise Lost, he turns it. He twists it just a little bit. And he says that what inflamed the jealousy of Satan to lead his impious war against the omnipotent God of heaven was the crowning of the Son of God with the glory of his Father and his session at the right hand of that glory on high. Ah, now, that could be a masterpiece. Granted, there is nothing in Scripture which suggests that. But, of course, Satan attacks the sun in the wilderness during the 40 days after his baptism. And he attacks him on the basis of his royal as well as his divine prerogatives. Is Milton far off from suggesting as he reflects upon that temptation, confrontation between Satan and the Prince of Life? Is Milton sensing something there that reflects upon that original probation? Remember, Christ is undergoing a probation even as Adam underwent a probation, even as the angels underwent a probation, Christ is undergoing a probation in that desert, a testing. Is Satan's temptation worming its way into an assault upon his royal kingly prerogatives as king of kings, lord of lords? Has taken his place at the right hand of glory. Do you ever think about that when you say the Apostles' Creed over and over and over and over and over again? Do you ever think about what it means to be at the right hand of glory? Well, think about what Milton says about it. Is it possibly right? Well, having taken his seat at the right hand of the Father, that the Son provoked the jealousy, or Satan was moved to jealousy and wanted to remove him. And so the war in heaven was Satan warring to take Jesus off the throne at the right hand of the Father. And put himself there, if not take God off the throne. Very, very interesting theological reflection from Milton's Paradise Lost. You see, you can think about your Bible more deeply by reading great literature, Milton included. Okay, now... These heavenly apostates have a counterpart. These angelic apostates have a counterpart in earthly apostates, human apostates, the apostates which had crept in to the community of Jude's recipients and readers. All right, that's what's being described here. Obviously, it's a description of the fall of the angels. 
the rebellion of the damned angels in heaven cast down into the darkness of eternal bondage and chains in hell, as Second Peter 2.4 confirms. However, we must ask ourselves what is not being described here. And this is an opinion that is found in many of the commentaries, and you will encounter it as you read the modern commentaries on the Epistle of Jude. It is a reflection upon Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, in which these commentators wax eloquent upon the phrase, sons of God and daughters of men, in that Genesis text. And here's what they do with it. They argue that that passage, Genesis 6, 1 to 4, is describing the sexual union of the sons of God, who are angels, with the daughters of men, who are women. And that the result of that intercourse is the generation or birth of giants, the Nephilim, as they are labeled in Genesis 6, 4. In other words, this shall we say, supernatural intercourse produced gigantic beings, the Nephilim. Now, we must ask a question at the beginning. What is the nature of an angelic being? What is the nature of an angel? What kind of a being is an angel? Is it a created being? It is a created being. It is not an eternal being. It is not an uncreated being. It is a created being. What kind of a created being is it? It is a spirit being, isn't it? It is created spirit. Does it have flesh? No. It does not have flesh. Does it have a body? No. Does it have bodily parts? No. No, it does not. We've got a problem, don't we? We've got sexual union between a being which has no sexual parts. Problem number one. Okay. All right. Problem number two. Matthew 22, verse 30. Duplicated in the Gospel of Luke. What does Jesus say about heaven? He says, there is no marriage in heaven. He says, there is no sexual activity in heaven. Because sexual relation has been transcended in heaven. It's been surpassed and superseded. It's been superseded by the wonderful ecstasy of spiritual union with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In other words, that sexual relation has been left behind. It's part of the childish things of this present age. And when we see face to face, we will put those things away. They will be transcended. Now, obviously, heaven is a place where procreation is unnecessary, so there's no need for sexual relation. There are not going to be generations of new children or families. We're not Mormons. We're not going to populate the stars with children and families forever. No, it's a glorification of that which has been, uh, been created in the flesh here. So sexual relation is completely unnecessary. So, first of all, from the nature of the angel, we have a physiological impossibility. Second of all, 
from what Jesus says about what the nature of heaven is, we also have an impossibility. Well, what is the provenance then of this idea that angels had sex with women in order to produce giants? Where did it come from? It comes from Hellenistic Jewish mythology. And it is found in the apocryphal book, First Enoch, which dates from the second century B.C. Now, the apocryphal book, First Enoch, is part of First and Second Enoch, which you will not find in your regular apocryphal Bible if you happen to have a Bible that contains apocrypha. But nonetheless, it is a part of the apocryphal works of the intertestamental period, which are greater. Those apocryphal works are greater than just those that are contained in a Bible that has the apocrypha between the Old and New Testament. Catholic Bible, Episcopal Bible, or even Lutheran Bibles. Nothing wrong with having a Bible that has the Apocrypha in it, but we do not believe as uh, as Calvinists that the Apocrypha have any authority with respect to the inspiration of the Bible or the Word of God. It's not the revelation of God, it's the revelation of mythmakers and fairy tales, as you can find if you read it. All right, so First Enoch is part of that ilk, and that's where this story arises. Such an exegesis of Jude 6 is absolutely irrelevant to what Jude is saying. In other words, an erotic interpretation of this passage, reading that angel human eroticism into this passage, is absolutely irrelevant to what he's talking about. He's talking about an abandoning of a particular abode. He's talking about an apostasy which surrenders that place of dwelling or habitation or glory. He's talking about a fall out and away from that particular arena. He's not talking about relations with human women. Not what he's talking about at all. You have to read that into the passage. You have to create eisegesis and not exegesis. And a perverse eisegesis at that. What is it with the modern mind that has to sexualize everything in the Bible? What is it? It's a disease of our culture. They have to sexualize TV ads now. It's absolutely epidemic. And it's absolutely wicked. Because it's perverse in its intent. Its intent is to seduce you. Its its intent is to reduce you. Its intent is to destroy your desire and your support for sexual chastity to erode those values and create a sexual anarchy. It is the triumph of the sexual revolution of the 60s come now to mainstream TV, and of course it's been in the movies now for over 15 years. Don't think that Hollywood doesn't know what it's doing. Don't think that the TV executives don't know what they're doing. Don't think that the Wall Street ad agencies don't know what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. And they're doing it on purpose. So then why do we have New Testament commentators doing it? Well, because Enoch says it. And after all, Enoch has, Enoch has no authority. Enoch has a book full of fairy tales and myths. It's absolutely absurd. I don't advise you to read it, but if you do, you'll laugh. It's that ridiculous. So why draw it into this passage? Even from some 
authentic evangelical commentators who ought to know better. I don't get it. Unless they want to show how hip they are, how cool they be. Yeah, we be cool. Or how perverse they can be. Or edgy, edging towards perversity. No. So, if you pick up a commentary on Jude, and when you come to verse 6, you start to read this story about angels and women, forget it. Just skip that part and read on to the next part of the commentary. So, I'm warning you ahead of time. It's there. Even in these evangelical commentators. So, uh, be prepared. Uh, If you go down that road of trying to buy a commentary which will you know, lead you a little deeper into Jude than I have. <clears throat> if I haven't mired you in the muck of the depths of the Twistle of Jude yet. <laughs> Any questions or comments? <clears throat> we end up then with two verses which are of symmetrically parallel to the situational disposition, moral attitude of the generation of the wilderness and the angels themselves. A attitude of an evil, rebellious heart of unbelief. The attitude of an apostate character and nature. That is what is knocking on the door of this community. In fact, it has insidiously wormed its way into this community. And it reminds us today that we too must beware of the potential of pretentious apostates who have wormed their way into the Christian community for the purpose of seducing us and also for misleading us. Any questions or comments? Scott. What do you think the fall of the angels is positively? What is the fall of the angels positively? Well, it's cleaning out a nest a, 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 a nest egg of rebels. That's one thing it's doing. <laughs> uh, you have something else in mind? Oh, no, no. I, I, I just I said you told us what it wasn't, and I thought you might repeat the classic exegesis of what it is. Oh, 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 thank you. Yes, thank you. All right. Who are these uh, sons of men and daughters of men? Yes, the traditional exegesis, John Murray's uh, very excellent uh, description of this in his book, Principles of Conduct, for instance. Uh, <clears throat> the sons of God are the generation of uh, Seth uh, <clears throat> up to the days of Noah, and the daughters of men are the generation of Cain uh, up to the days of Noah. So what's happening is we've got this uh, these two lines, and we're going to run into this when, he, when we come to the Enoch prophecy later on here in Jude 14. We've got these two lines that emerge uh, from um, Cain and Seth. And the Sethites call on the name of the Lord until the days of Noah. And one of the reasons they stop calling on the name of the Lord is that they intermarry with these daughters of men who are the daughters of Cain by way of Lamech up to Noah. So, these... This, this uh, unequally yoked marriage, these unequally yoked relationships, produces this rebellious generation which is, whose 
whose heart is evil and only evil, evil continuously, and God vows to destroy it. Though the traditional exegesis is this is not angels, this is humans. This is the interrelationship of what was a believing generation, the descendants of Seth, sons of God, and an unbelieving generation, the descendants of Cain, the daughters of men, and those unequally yoked, uh, the unequally uh, yoked fruit of that was a, a whole gener- a whole world full of unbelievers, only Noah himself being accepted. That's what you wanted, right? The answer, that was, but that's that was another question I should have asked. But the, another question I had was, what can you tell us what June six is referring to? What event? It's not. It's not there in Genesis. So what event was this? Did it happen? Oh, he, 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 no, no, he's just talking about the fall of the angels, in my opinion. It, it, not, nothing more than that. I mean, if you want me to expostulate upon the good angels who persevered and didn't fall, <laughs> that, that, that's another topic. But. <laughs> Frank, did you have your hand up back there? Oh, a vicarious question. <laughs> Cheryl. Uh, when I was reading Hebrews 12, uh, my particular translation says has a sinful, it doesn't say evil, it's a sinful unbelieving heart. Yes, you could, you could translate the word porneia there, sinful, okay, instead of either, either way. But uh, my point there is uh, that it is still an adjective. It is not a noun. So, once again, I emphasize the King James translation being there more grammatically and literally correct. And you know I don't recommend the King James very often for modern reading. But it has... I still read it devotionally because it has this great literary style. But I don't read it to study because... You know, you need you need to catch up on 500 years of manuscript discoveries and comparative uh, <coughs> comparative textual criticism. All right, let's close in prayer. Our Father Jude alerts us to the dangers of insidious apostasy and the formal pretense that many, even in our own day, make about being outwardly part of the community of faith when inwardly they have an evil heart of unbelief. We realize, O Lord, that we do not have eyes to see as you do. But Jude is alerting us to character, disposition, and behavior. We pray, O Lord, then, that we may be alert to the behavior that comes from an evil heart of unbelief, part of which is the tyranny of self-indulgence and self-importance and the power-grabbing of absolute authority over others, including their private lives. We realize, Father, that there are many in the Christian community that have this disposition. We realize, O Lord, that they are pretenders. Because their real goal is power. Even as the goal of these apostates in Jude's day was power. Ultimate control of people. Lord, having alerted us, draw us 
into the liberty of the sons and daughters of God. That precious freedom, which does not sell itself in bondage to any human power. The only power that we're in bondage to is the omnipotent power of you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in that power, there is great freedom and redemption. We rejoice in that. We hold it precious. We love it dearly. And we pray, O Lord, that you will sustain us in it. Through your word, through your church, through the seal of the sacraments, that you will indeed build us up in this most holy faith by your power and for your glory, never for our own. And in Jesus' name we ask it.